Let's pray before we begin. Father, how amazing it is that uh, you care about our joy. That you care about not only how joyful we are, but where that joy actually comes from. May we come uh, with a fuller understanding uh, through this text in your word of what it means to be joyful in Christ. May you give us uh, the ears to hear, the eyes to see your beauty and your glory and uh, what you have uh, planned for us in this passage this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can explore it and proclaim it, not just on a Sunday morning, but wherever we are. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. This statement is a foundational statement, which means that I can probably assume that it is the same for everybody, that everybody wants to be happy. I like being happy. I assume you do as well. It makes me feel good to be happy, and I assume it makes you feel good as well. So what if I told you this morning that the Bible, God's Word, shows something, and not only shows something, but offers something that will give you ultimate joy? Ultimate joy. More than the highest happiness than you've ever experienced. Think about in your life. When were you the most happy? This text this morning will give you higher and greater joy than that. More than the emotions you perhaps felt when you had your first child. More than a day you were married. This morning we have the opportunity, all of us, all of us listening, all of us in Cremona, all of us online, to get into the Word of God. As we continue this summer series that we've been doing for the past month, if you can believe it, John 14 through to 17. The Gospel of John. In our Bibles, if you haven't opened up to John before, very easy to get to. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. Simply open up to Matthew, which is the first book. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you'll get to John. John was a disciple of Jesus. Even later in the New Testament, he wrote at least one letter. The disciple called John, the apostle called John, knew Jesus really, really well. Really well. He listened to him. He followed him. And he saw the impact of his life on everyone else. And so John here this morning details the words of Jesus in these four chapters that we've been going through this summer. Hours before Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus. For the past month, we've been, gone, we've been going through the first chapter. So if you want to open up your Bibles, John chapter 14. John 14, where Jesus began the chapter by saying these words, challenging and yet very comforting words to all of us, I hope. These were the words. Do not let your what be troubled. Your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. These words started John 14, and they helped guide us all the way through the whole chapter. 
helped guide our thoughts as we went through the whole chapter, because each verse gave us reason upon reason to help our troubled hearts. Here are some of those reasons. Look back in John chapter 14 with me. Jesus said these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, also last week we heard that Jesus would be giving us his peace. Not just any kind of peace we could find in this world, but the peace of Jesus. And that ended John 14 last week. Now look at John 15 with me if you can. John 15 uh, is a little bit different. Although the tone of Jesus uh, from John 14 is still there, Jesus now in John 15 touches on a few different subjects. Today, this morning, we find out that Jesus cares about our joy. He cares about where our joy comes from. And he cares that we get the most joy we can in our lives. Now, I want to be careful with this because this isn't such a a hedonistic statement in the sense that we can do or must do whatever we can on this earth to pursue the things of this earth to make us happy. No, this doesn't mean that Jesus is giving us permission to reach out and and have self-indulgence with other people, whatever that may be. No, this morning in this text, Jesus is offering more joy than that. And this is good news for us all, because we all want to be happy, don't we? So with this in mind, I want us to enter the text knowing that Jesus not only cares for the joy of his people, but cares above all where that joy comes from. John 15, 1 to 11 is where we're going to be, uh, the passage that Dave just read. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, open up to John 15, 1 to 11. Now, in order to see and understand this text well, we need to actually go to the end to see the beginning, because verse 11 tells us the reason that Jesus said all of these things. John 15, verse 11. Read it with me if you can at home or if you're in Cremona this morning. It says these words behind me as well. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And so I want us to go into this passage this morning with knowing that Jesus is saying all of these things, verses 1, 2, 10, so that the joy of Jesus will be in us, and in that our joy may be complete. Jesus cares about our joy. But notice here in verse 11, as we start soon, that he isn't simply saying, these things I have spoken to you, that your joy may be full. He says these words, that my joy may be in you. My joy may be in you. Jesus knows and cares for you so much because he knows the only way we will have full joy is by having his joy in us. This isn't a joy that we produce in our own efforts with ourselves and in our own strength. It's a joy that is given to us by Jesus, by being in Jesus. And so I want to therefore give this sermon the title, 
union with Christ, our highest reason for joy. Union, meaning knowing and being with and in Christ, in Jesus the Messiah. So let's enter verse 1 of chapter 15 with all of this in mind about the joy of Jesus. First verse, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. The Gospel of John is and should be well known for quite a few things. One of these things is the appearance, appearances of these I am statements from Jesus. If you've been following along in the sermon series, we've seen one already, John 14, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This one today is the last one in the Gospel of John, and this is the only one where the Father, the Father is also included in the statement itself. These I am statements in the Gospel of John give us glimpses into who Jesus really is and was. Here are the previous five ones before the way, the truth, and the life. These previous I am statements. John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. John 10, 9. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. These statements from Jesus reveal his countercultural ministry. That although these terms are familiar in a way, all of them reveal that Jesus is deeper than them, than the surface itself. He is not literally bread, nor did he come to primarily give bread but rather to be bread itself, the bread of life. He isn't also simply light, but he is the light of the entire world, a world of darkness. And he is the one whom people must be saved through, and the good shepherd who knows his sheep. But this morning, as we enter this last I am statement, what does it mean that Jesus is the true vine? And the Father is the gardener. Or in many translations, it says, the Father is the vine dresser. Firstly, I think it means this. The vine dresser, or the gardener in this sense, knows the vine deeply and personally. There's this clear connection between the two. Matthew Henry, who's a a commentator on this text, he said these words about the vine dresser or the gardener on the vine, says these words. A vine dresser or gardener is more than a mere farmer. Grapes are more than an annual crop. The vine dresser or gardener's grapevines remain with him for decades. He comes to know each one in a personal way, much like a shepherd with his sheep. He knows how the vine is faring from year to year and which ones are more productive or vigorous than others. He knows what they respond to and what special care certain ones need. Every vine has its own personality 
and the vine dresser comes to know it over the years. The vine dresser cares for each vine and nurtures it, pruning it the appropriate amount at the appropriate times, fertilizing it, lifting its branches from the ground and propping them or tying them to the trellis, taking measures to protect them from insects and disease. Back in the Old Testament in Psalm chapter 80, verse 8, the 80th Psalm, Israel is described as a vine. It says these words, Psalm 80, verse 8. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Let me say that again. Psalm 88. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. See, Jesus here is saying that he is actually the true vine. The true vine, right? I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Now the vine before in the Old Testament, according to Psalm 80 verse 8, was the people of God, Israel, who were, as we are today, still sinners, who couldn't fully obey the father. Jesus here, he says he's the true vine, who instead of us, the people of God, he is perfect and was and still is. One who lived this perfect life that we couldn't. One who lived in full obedience of the Father, the gardener or the vine dresser, when we could not. By also declaring himself as the true vine, Jesus is saying that he is going to be the source of this great spiritual harvest. One who builds his church and nothing will stand against it. Hudson Taylor, who's one of my spiritual heroes, was a missionary. He said these words about this particular verse. He said, As I thought of the vine and the branches, what light the blessed Spirit poured direct into my soul. I saw not only that Jesus would never leave me, but that I was a member of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. The vine, now I see, is not the root merely, but all root, stem, branches, twigs, leaves, flowers, fruit. And Jesus is not only that, he is soil and sunshine, air and showers, and 10,000 times more than we could ever dreamed, wished for, or needed. And so with this great reality, let's go on. Verses 2 to 3. These words, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. You see, these branches from the true vine, the ones that don't produce any fruit, he takes away. Now let's stop there for a second. And remember why Jesus is saying these words. He is saying them so that our joy in him is full. We need to remember this because this verse can stop us in our tracks. And in a way, it probably should. Like Jesus does masterfully, he often stops us right in our tracks and wakes us up to glaring realities. 
What this is telling us is that, yes, we are saved through grace in our faith, and it is God who holds us fast. However, the life of the Christian shouldn't be a life of complacency. In one way, you can say it like this. A Christian is not saved by his or her works, but displays the confirmation of their salvation by doing works. Ephesians 2, 8-10 tells this in the clearest possible way. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. And in verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Saved for works, not by works. By doing works, we produce fruits by the work of the Spirit. These branches that bear fruit, he prunes. And of course, with pruning, as we know, it hopefully bears more fruit. He also says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Clean branches, ready for taking away or pruning. So as we pause for a second, how does this produce joy in our hearts? How does being a branch on the true vine produce joy within us? Well, like Hudson Taylor before said, being a branch on the true vine reminds us that we are truly united to Christ, kept to him by him. There is nothing more joyful than this. Union with Christ as our highest reason for joy. United with the Savior of the world. United with the Creator of the world. How could anything else produce more joy in our lives? Stop at this moment to look for ultimate joy and satisfaction in the things of this world. Ultimate joy is found in knowing and being with and in Jesus. Now with verses 4 to 8, tells us even more about this, this being united with Christ. Jesus says, remain in me, remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. He says again, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But listen to these words, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Jesus, in his pursuit of giving us full joy in him, challenges us by saying, Remain in me, and I in you. Remain in me. 
Here in this passage, Jesus is telling us exactly how to not be the branches that are taken away. He is telling us how fruit is produced in us, and that it begins and it ends with remaining in Jesus. The branch, that is us, cannot bear fruit by itself unless we are in the vine. But how often do we try to bear fruit, that we try to do the things of Jesus without Jesus? This sounds kind of silly, but I think we do it often. We try to have things like self-control. We try to love, we try to forgive others without reminding ourselves that we can't do this without remaining in Jesus. When we do all of this without Jesus, our motivations become false. Our motives become self-glorification instead of glorifying our Savior. Now what happens when we don't remain in Jesus? We continue to practice sin. 1 John 3, 8. The person who practices sin belongs to the devil. Because the devil has been sinning since the beginning, God's Son appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus makes this clear. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. These branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. This shouldn't surprise us as Christians who read and believe their Bibles. Those who are not in Christ will go to the Christless place. Perhaps this seems kind of shocking for us to hear those words from Jesus. And yet the call of the gospel is to self-deny, to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, to trust in him, to remain in him. Those who remain in Jesus, as he says, will do these things, can do these things in verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This again is this joy from being united with Christ. Jesus adds these words, my words remain in you. How do his words remain in us? How do the words of Jesus remain in us? John 14, 26. The previous chapter says these words. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit helps us do this. Therefore, we must pray all the more that we remain, that we abide in Jesus. Verses 8 to 11 ends this passage this morning. It says this, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. In these words, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be complete. 
Notice again here that Jesus is making sure that we know that nobody is saved based on fruit, based on their works. But rather, the results of being saved is the fruit we produce in abiding and remaining with the true vine, with Jesus. He also adds something here. He says, remain in my love if you keep my commands. Remember these words? We saw them a lot in the previous chapter. Commands, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Jesus ends this passage this morning by reminding us of the basis of our works, our fruit. And in all of our works, our fruit, there must be love. Not just any love, but rather the love that comes from obedience in Jesus. In being united to Jesus, we must also obey him. There's no other way. To be united means to obey him and to walk in love in all of our works. And remember, these things Jesus has spoken to us, that our joy would be in us, that our joy may be full. Look at these words from the passage. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Just as the Father loves Jesus, he loves us. And he says, remain in that love. How how powerful is that? As we end this morning, the challenge is this. Have full joy, church. How could we not by being in him? Do you believe this? Do you believe that your highest joy comes from being united to Jesus and being only satisfied with and in him? Perhaps many of you don't believe it because you see Christians as the least happy people and joyful people out there. I've always said that Christians have the highest reason to be joyful. And yes, it's true, many times we don't act like it. And perhaps that needs to change. No, this doesn't mean that we act as though nothing is bothering us all of the time. Or we pretend to ignore the injustice and violence in the world. No, our calling is higher than that. No, what this means is that through all of it, even the persecution that we will endure, we will only be satisfied in Jesus and him alone. That even in the hurt, we will be joyful in Christ. That even in our crying out for injustice and our acting upon injustice, to be met with justice, we will be satisfied in Jesus, our Messiah. Church, this morning, our union with Christ must be our highest reason for joy. Show the world this and proclaim it in word and deed. Perhaps even more in a time of pandemic and in a time of fear and uneasiness in this village and beyond. Let's pray this morning. Father, I pray that this passage uh, would wake us up to the the fact of joy, that we would understand um, where true joy comes from, and that we would repent of where we have looked for satisfaction and joy and happiness in other places. May we count our blessings, name them one by one, and, and count you as our greatest blessing, that Jesus, you died for us, You saved us. 
And may we live with that truth and proclaim it in praise as we sing another song and as we go throughout our week. In Jesus' name, amen.